tell you a story about a couple. They had a 20-something living, still living at home, and the parents were a little worried, so they decided to conduct a test. They put a $20 bill, a Bible, and a bottle of whiskey on the front hall table, and they hid pretending uh, they were not home. The father said, if our son takes the money, he'll be a businessman. If he takes the Bible, he'll be a priest. But if he takes the bottle of whiskey, I'm afraid our son will be a drunk. So the parents stayed up or stayed awake in the nearby closet, waited nervously, looking through the peehole or keyhole, waiting to see uh, what their son did. So the son comes in, sees all the stuff, picks up the $20 bill, holds it up to the light, puts it in his pocket, holds up the Bible, flicks through a couple places and uh, grabs it. And then he takes the gravel, opened it up, took a drink or a smell of it and went up to his room. And his dad said, that's oh, the worst. He's going to be a politician. So whether that's true or not, I don't know. But uh, sometimes that's how people view uh, something simplistic like that of how a kid's going to turn out. So for the message day, I want you to think back. How many of you have driven to a big city like Seattle or Portland in the last year? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, have you noticed any changes? So how many of you have been in Seattle or Portland, let's say, five or ten years ago? Raise your hand. Okay. Those that you have been there in the last year, have you noticed any differences? Yeah, not at all, right? Um, my wife's gone through some different health issues, and so we had to go down to OHSU a lot. And I saw something new I hadn't seen before um, with the homeless issue in particular was there was one of the bridges over the freeway had a tent on it that was halfway out in the lane and halfway. It's like I'd never seen anything like that before. Uh, driving around some different areas in the Rose Quarter and stuff like that. It's just, uh, you know, let's just say it's not a pretty city like it used to be. Seattle's no different. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of other cities that aren't different, but some things have seriously changed. There's an Oregon Live article that I read that was from a couple, or from 2021, and it said this. Portland rests in the shadow of Mount Hood with two major rivers and a verdant tree canopy. Its natural beauty and trailblazing policies on recycling and sustainability built its reputation as a civic showpiece. I don't know if you use those words to describe it today, but that's what they did in 2021. But the article goes on and says, That idyllic image now lies buried beneath mounds and mounds of garbage, shocking residents and visitors alike. I've lived here my whole life and have never seen anything like it, said Dan Grogan, 59, who owns Fisherman's Marine and Outdoor, a sporting goods store at the Hayden Meadows Square in North Portland. Abandoned cars, broken furniture, and heaps of debris lined the network of streets around the shopping center in nearby Delta Park as Grogan surveyed the troubling views from his SUV. Much of the garbage emanated from a patchwork of encampments and illegal dump sites left largely untouched by an overwhelmed public sanitation crew, including a half-mile stretch inside of park boundaries. That article was from 2001. Have you seen pictures of San Francisco, New York, L.A.? Just put in the city that you want to think about, and things have changed. Things have changed. I want you to turn over to Second Peter chapter 2. And I want you to have, if you can think in your mind of some of the imagery uh, that you've seen of driving through some of these places, I want you to keep that in your mind to help you understand the message that I'm going to try to preach uh, with the Holy Spirit helping to make some analogies to our own lives. In Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 20, 
It says, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse them than the beginning. So doctrinally, this is talking about the tribulation period, the fact that for any Jew or Jewish proselyte, if they get saved and they do what they have to do in that time period, which is they have to keep the Old Testament law and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, that if any point that they fall away from that, it's game over. You're done with. No, no, no take backs. You know, it's not like kids games where take backs and no touchbacks and all, you know, all the other things like that. He, there, there, it's very clear that in that time period of the tribulation that you have to endure to the end, the end of your life or the end of the tribulation, whichever comes first, and you have to do it completely 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have to keep going on and on and on. And we're not going to be looking at the doctrinal part of it. We're going to look at the inspirational application of how we as Christians can apply this to our lives. I know there are a lot of people out there that go to churches today that look at that verse and they say it applies to us doctrinally. Therefore, we can lose our salvation. I want you to be clearly, clearly understand what I'm saying is if you are saved according to the New Testament, according to, or according to Paul's gospel, the gospel of grace, Paul calls it my gospel, you cannot lose your salvation. You may lose your fellowship with the Lord, your relationship you may lose, but when the trumpet blows, you're out of here. But that's not so for some people in the past. So we're looking at this inspirationally means we're trying to think of this as like when you, have you ever been out in the field and you see a cow eating grass and you can come back later and it may be an hour or two hours later and they're, they're just chewing that cud right? What we're going to try to do is chew the cut in this case. We're looking at the inspirational application of this verse, and we're going to try to apply it our lives so we can pull out some things from it that may help us in our Christian life. And that's the goal today. So the first thing I did was uh, pulled out the 1828 dictionary for pollution. Now, understanding in 1828, I am pretty sure their idea of pollution and what's going on down in Portland and Seattle and other places, it was not in their mindset when they wrote it. But nonetheless, it says the act of polluting. Defilement, uncleanness, impurity, the state of being polluted. Number three, in the Jewish economy, legal or ceremonial uncleanness, which disqualifies a person for sacred services or for common intercourse with the people or rendered anything unfit for sacred use. In the religious sense, it's the guilt and the effect of sin and idolatry and etc. I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 6, and I just want to belabor a small point. Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 4. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 says, For it is impossible for those that were uh, who were once in lightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. That all sounds like a Christian, right? Then what does it say? If they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to shame. So one of the things we can look at is understand in the book of Hebrews, the first indication we should look at is the name Hebrew. I don't know about you, but I don't have any Hebrew blood in me, at least as far as I know. It's pretty much Norwegian and a spattering of some other things. Uh, the majority of you here probably are not Hebrew. 
This book is written to the Hebrews. This is written to the Jews because there's going to come a time like nobody has ever seen before that's worse than anybody can possibly imagine. And God has written some special scriptures to them to give them doctrinal truth to help them in the difficult time they have coming. Just like God has given us the Pauline epistles to help us in some difficult times that we deal with. This verse here is another verse people use to go, oh, I see you can lose your salvation. You know all those people that you can lose your salvation and you get resaved again and you lose your salvation and get resaved again? That's not what this verse is talking about. It's saying you lose it, you're out. But yet they will use this verse to tell you that if you know if you uh if you don't walk like a duck and quack like a duck, then you're not a Christian. You know, if you don't put on the suit and put on the tie and look right, if you don't talk like a Christian, then obviously you must have lost your salvation and you need to get saved again. And the problem is they're so messed up on what a relationship is that they don't understand that God, he said he adopted you. In the Jewish economy, when you adopt somebody, you can never kick them out of whatever they deserve. They're in. You can get rid of all, you know, the kids that you actually, you know, went through all the labor and all the other stuff through, you can kick them out and they don't get any money. But you can't do that to an adopted person in the Jewish economy. Once you adopt them, they're in, they're part of the family. You can't take away those things. God's the same thing with us. When we get saved, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how bad you shipwreck your life. You're still saved. You may have zero fellowship. You may have no rewards when you go to heaven, but you're still going to heaven. And I know some people are probably going to get quite upset when the trumpet blows and God takes them home anyways. You know, they're going to be upset for all sorts of reasons. Why didn't you get to go through the tribulation? or I didn't go to halfway through the tribulation, or whatever their excuse may be. Nonetheless, is the fact that the Bible does tell there are a group of people that are going to get to a point where they are going to lose their salvation. And understand that is going to be a difficult time. If you're a mother here and you have a child, I want you to think about this thing about losing your salvation. What are you going to do if everything gets so bad that you can't feed your child and it's starving right in front of you and there's nothing you can do? And you're a dad and you're seeing this happen. There's some difficult things that go through. Um, that's what they're going to go through in that time frame. It's going to be pretty bad. Turn over to, uh, let's see. No, let's skip that. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, which are all verses that we should all have memorized. And it helps us understand this is from the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, and he's giving us a verse that helps us with a lot of these things. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You know, if you're going to give a gift to somebody, you know, like you know, maybe you're giving them Altoids or whatever else, you just go down and hand it out to them. They either grab it or they don't. It's their choice. That's what God's doing. He says salvation is a gift for you. There's no works. And how do we know that? The next part of the verse. Not of works, lest any man should boast. See, if there's anything you could do for your salvation, you'd have a reason to boast about it. But God goes, I took care of all that. There's nothing you're doing. You didn't do anything of it. You have nothing to boast about. That's the greatest thing we know about salvation is that we don't have to worry about losing it. Now, you should worry about losing your fellowship. I mean, is how close are you with your Lord? How close are you with your spiritual dad? 
And I'm going to talk to you about some things that can get in the way of you and your spiritual dad having a good relationship. And it has to do with pollution. Uh, in the National Geographic, they just ran an article not too long ago that talked about pollution is the introduction of harmful materials into the environment. These harmful materials are called pollutants. Pollutants can be natural, such as volcanic ash. Anybody been around here in 1980 when the mountain blew up and got to experience that? You know, it was real fun being a young kid around then, and you had to mow lawns. Because you'd be mowing long, there'd be just be an ash cloud right in the lawn you're mowing for a long time. Uh, you may have other things. It can be natural. They can be created by the human race, like trash or runoff produced by factories. Uh, they can be from, they can damage the quality of the air, the water, or the land. And uh, some of those things don't come around right away. Here about, uh, it was like 40, 50 years ago in England, they had a slurry. It was all this off stuff from a manufacturing process of mining and other stuff that was on the top of this hill. And they had an unusual amount of rain that came through, and it broke all the structure, and all of that ran down the hill, went through, I think, a couple houses, then it went through a school, and then it went into the middle of town. Everybody, everybody there was just killed, just gone, dead. What? It was the after effects of a mine, a material process that went on. It was pollutants that killed them. You know, it's easy to look at it that way, but sometimes we don't think about the other pollutants that are out there. So inspirationally, I want you to think about, we're going to look at some pollutants and think about it inspirationally in this way. We're going to, first one we're going to talk about is air pollution. Air pollution, in my mind, I want you to think about this thing. It's spiritual. It's what comes out of you. Have you ever thought about what pollution comes out of you? It can be all sorts of things. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, we're going to look down at verse 34. And here the Lord's talking and he says, O generation of what? Vipers. I don't know about you, but this is not how you endear yourself to politicians, religious leaders, everybody. You call them vipers. You're not making any friends. I mean, there might be a few people in the world that might think that's a compliment, but most people are not. And then he goes on, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. There are times in your life, some things are going to come out of your heart, through your mouth, through that little member, the tongue, and you're going to say some things you would not ordinarily say. Now, you may be under the influence of alcohol. You may be under the influence of emotions where you're angry, you're bitter, you're whatever, and sometimes stuff comes out. Uh, I'll give you a personal testimony to that. When I was in high school, one of my best friends' name was Virgil. And Virgil, when he was a young kid up in Alaska, the mobile home that he was in caught on fire. And his crib was on fire, and he got burned, and he got saved because his mom went through the, all they had, they didn't have real windows. What they had was like a plastic material that was the windows. And she broke through those, receiving burns all over her body to get him out of there. And there came a period of time, even though he's a really good friend of mine, we got into a fight. I don't know, well, this is hard to believe, teenage boys getting into, you know, some kind of verbal discussion and everything else. And as part of those, I made a comment about his being burned and why. This is my best friend. 
Why would I say things like that? Out of the abundance of the heart. I was mad and I wanted to hurt him. I was mad. It wasn't right. It was wrong before I let those words come out of my mouth, but out of the abundance of the heart. Where's your heart at? So you get your heart in a wrong place, all sorts of stuff that can come out. And once it comes out, it's not like you can pull it back in. It's not like I could take those words back. I can apologize, but I can't take those words back. Here is somebody that is supposedly one of his best friends being very pointed and being very hurtful to him verbally. Forget the fight. Forget the fight. It was shameful. It was pollution. It was coming out of me, out of inside of me. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate. So if you're not sure what God hates, it's your lucky day. We're going to go over a few of them. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look. You realize this isn't even saying anything. This isn't even doing an act. I mean, it's not like you did something. You know, it's not like, you know, you tripped the kid and then he lost his ice cream cone or something. You know, just an, a proud look is an abomination to God. That's the first one. Second one, a lying tongue. You know, that tongue, that little member, one of the hardest things in your Christian walk to control, especially if you think about it, how easy it is when you know somebody and you love them or you're careful and you're close to it, you know how to hurt them. You know what words to say to get that point dagger right into their heart. See, it's not like somebody in the outside, they could say some things to you, but they don't really know you. They don't know how to hurt you. It's a totally different thing in a husband-wife relationship, brother and sister, parents and child, child and parents, all those different close combinations of people. You know how to hurt them the most. Then it continues on. It's not just a proud look and a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood and heart that devises wicked imagination, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. See, that's what th- God thinks about people who just show up in a church and their whole thing is to drive a wedge in there and to get some of the people in the church to leave and go follow somebody else or go follow them. I've seen it. Um, when I was young in my Christian walk, if you would have talked to me, I would have said, that stuff doesn't happen. Oh, yeah, it does. We had a lady in our church who was from a family, you know, there was a pretty good-sized family in our church, and she was uh, married. Her husband at the po- this point in time was in jail in Idaho, and she was going around to whatever lady in our church would listen to her to build a little group under her, and then she was explaining about how all your husbands are ungodly, and they're not what God's doing, and, you know, uh, you probably, you know, all the other things that can go from there. What was she doing? She was, tr- she was like a wolf trying to pick off some of the flock. There's guys that come into the church and do the same thing. You know, the pastor preached a message, but, you know, if it were me, I would have done it better, or I would have done this, or he messed up on that, or used the wrong word. 
I'm just letting you know, if you get up in front of people, it is just a matter of time until you make a complete shipwreck and train wreck out of it because you're going to say the wrong word. You're going to have, you know, God showed me that in one message and it only took a couple minutes. The first verse I wrote down was wrong. So let's go to this verse. And then you're up there and you're not really sure where the verse is. And you're like, uh-oh. Went to the second verse. That one was wrong. I went to the third verse. It was the right verse, but I went to the wrong spot. So after that, I was like, oh, Lord, we're just not doing any verses from now on for the rest of this message. And I'm never doing this again. But think about, here we are of these seven things that God finds an abomination. And some of them don't even take you opening your mouth to do. How simple that is. I mean, if you don't know what a proud look is, let's just go downstairs. I'm sure we can find somebody. There's got to be a little boy down there somewhere that, that we can either, we might have to wait a little bit of time, but there's going to be somebody down there that you're going to get the, the tood from. You know, uh, or we can wait until after church and then you're going out to eat. Or maybe it's just on the drive to wherever they're going. You'll see the tood come out. That's attitude. That's how we described it in our family. Uh, you know, of that proud look. There's lots of other looks you can have other than proud. Other proud's just a good one. I mean, as we talked about last Sunday, if you remember, you got two fathers. It's either the devil or God. There's no gray area. There's no little fence area that you can kind of sit in the middle and be okay with both sides. You're either on God's side or you're not. That's it. By the way, this, this other father, he was pretty proud. He told God, I'm going to do this and this and this and this five times. And God says, no, you're not. This is my plagiarized version of it. Nope. No, you're not. It's like a little kid. I know there are a lot. I know, I you know, the day and age we live in, it's a different world. I understand that. But I guarantee you, if any little kid growing up today in Walmart on the candy aisle of death for a parent, as you're dragging them through there, and you see some kid absolutely have a burnout meltdown, that did not happen when I was a kid. Um, and I'll explain to you why. Because the instant you started doing that, the first thing to do, the mom would grab you by the ear and lift you up so you're on your tippy toes. And then escort you, probably somewhere where people aren't around, or maybe not, depending on how bad your kid is. And then you would get um, the rod of correction applied to the seat of knowledge. And the rod of correction, you know, the amazing thing about moms is it didn't have to be a particular one. It could be a spoon. It could be a hand. It could be any object that was in close relation to you. If it was your dad, he may make you go out and cut off a switch, which is, you know, that means a stick that is very flexible and can provide the the added zing right at the end so that when you come up, you will come up off the, the, you know, this part of your foot because it it got your attention got. And uh, one of the things I learned is I heard a good quote from uh, when I went to boot camp is our company commander, he made this statement when we got there first. He said, I can't make you do anything, but I can sure make you wish you had. <laughs> and we found out what he meant later. We didn't get the whole picture the first time around on that message. It didn't take long to figure out, you know, because people started getting special nicknames. Uh, they had other special things that happened. We had one guy from Tennessee who had a quite... Um, well, he had a toot about a lot of things. So our company commander told him, every time anybody calls attention on deck, you have to drop and give me 50 push-ups. 
The first thing he did was walk down, go down to the, the division office that we had at our boot camp building, and got every person in there that was a second class and above that you had to call attention and deck for, and ran them through. So he, But he did it, spaced them out. Wouldn't want any overlap of those 50 push-ups. Got to make sure you're done with the 51st. So by the end of that, just the first day alone, it's like it got to the point where he had no arms left. They were gone. I mean, you can be in great shape, but after, you know, you have enough people come through, there's no strength left in those arms to do push-ups. See, he learned a very important lesson. You can do whatever you want. There just may be a payment that may come reckoning. Oh, there were all sorts of other ones. If he didn't want you to do push-ups, he'd do sharks. Anybody know what sharks are? That's where you have to lay on your stomach, you put your hands and feet out in front of you, and you pretend you're swimming away from a shark. And your hands and your feet can never touch the ground. And you just keep going and going. Well, you know, eventually there's this other thing that happens out. You get tired and you can't hold your arms and feet up. And then they usually get down at that point and call you all sorts of really bad names that I don't say anymore and tell you shark. And then you have to start all over and keep going. And they keep doing that until you physically cannot move your hands and arms. Aren't you glad and grateful God doesn't do that to you? Now, I'm going to say this. There are times God may do something like to you, but most of the time he's very gracious He's long-suffering. He's patient. And he waits for you to realize, I'm the knucklehead, which he's had to hear me say that many times. And in spite of some of those times, God's going to do something sweet for you that you know only way this happened is because of God. And you're sitting there with your relationship not in a good place. You've You've known you've done a whole bunch of bad stuff. You've said a whole bunch of bad stuff. And God does something sweet for you that you know comes directly from him. And then you're humiliated. See, it's one thing, it's really easy to be angry at God because of whatever. But then when you know that you're the cause and you're the problem and he does something so sweet for you, You're humiliated. You're embarrassed by how sweet and good God is. That's why the Bible says it's the goodness of God that leadeth repentance. There are some times I've had a more real repentance because of something God did positive for me than I did when it was negative. And I deserve negative. I mean, there's, that's not even a debate. Turn over to James chapter three, verse five. James chapter three, verse five. James chapter 3, verse 5. And it says here, Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. One of the things with your tongue is, your tongue for, I'm going to try to give you an analogy of your tongue. It's like a rudder on a boat. It determines the direction of the boat. It's like a bit in the horse. It determines, you grab that bit and you yank the side of that, uh, of the bridle, you're gonna make that horse go in the direction because of the control that bit has on the horse. Your tongue is the same thing. It's gonna direct you in the direction you go. You have a filthy mouth and you let filthy stuff come out of it. Well, that's the direction you're gonna go. Don't be surprised. That's how it goes. Now, consequently, just because you hide it well and you only, you know, talking, you know, really long King James prayers, oh Lord, thou knowest, and etc. So you got control of the tongue a little bit, doesn't mean what's going on really in the heart. Because see, as soon as nobody's around, then you'll speak freely in your own head or freely with your tongue what you really think. 
The tongue is a little member, but boasteth great things. And let's face it, all it takes sometimes is a little idle word, a word that you didn't really think would do anything, and it just blows up. It becomes a great disaster. And then how do you put it out? How do you fix it? Sometimes you can't. Sometimes there are parental, sibling, family relationships that are destroyed because somebody was just a little too loose with their lips. And they let some stuff come out, and now the damage is done. And now pride gets involved, and nobody wants to apologize to anybody. Nobody wants to take responsibility. There is pollution out there is what comes out of you. The actions that you do, the words that you say, those can all be pollutants. They will affect you spiritually. There's nothing that can come out of you that does not affect you spiritually, either positively or negatively. Second one's water. Uh, I use this as the flesh, and this is what you choose to partake of or what you put into you. Uh, Let's face it, you have a lot of options of what you put into you. Turn over to Psalm chapter 14. You can put all sorts of stuff in you. When I went to the Navy in 1985, you know, a bazillion years ago, January 1st, to Chicago, Illinois, which is really cold. I wouldn't recommend it, not in January. Uh, other times of the month would be a much better time to go to boot camp. Um, but nonetheless, I went there, and, you know, you get a group of people that are become your friends, and they go with you to the next school, and you get this group or this clique around you. You will pick up their habits. You will pick up their things. So like in a boot camp, we had a whole bunch of people that picked up a southern accent. Why? Because we had tons of people from the south. It's amazing. It just, like, it takes over. You know, I didn't hear anybody picking up like the Norwegian Midwest accent in boot camp, but we had a lot of people who were speaking Southern by the time we got to the end. Uh, when we went to uh, our A school or our first schools, you're in this little room with people and you start picking up the habits they do. So what did they do? They were drinking. They were cussing. They were chewing tobacco. You know that stuff where you put a little, lip be- or a little bit between your teeth and gums? You know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you just go along because you want to fit in. You want to be one of them. You're you're putting stuff into your mouth. And then the things are later on, if God so chooses, we had a uh, a guy we called Grandpa because he was 24 years old. He was old. I mean, like really old. But he was also starting to bald a little bit, so that kind of fit into the thing. Uh, he'd actually gone to college and got a four-year degree. Why he wanted to be enlisted and not an officer, I don't know. But it was him and his brother, two country boys from Mississippi, called Grandpa. Now, Grandpa chewed uh, Copenhagen as well. One of the things I learned from watching him was later on, he had to have a surgery where they had to do a skin graft to the inside of his lip because of the damage from the tobacco. I don't know if you've noticed this, but they don't talk to you really about all the bad things that can go wrong with tobacco products, how it affects your lungs, your throat, your tongue. Uh, he eventually ended up losing part of his tongue. Uh, all the other stuff that can do. Well, what about other stuff? What about alcohol? You know, as I told you before last week, I've seen people have alcohol poisoning where they have drinking so much alcohol, you cannot wake them up. You know, I've seen all sorts of other stuff. It's the stuff that you put in you. And here in uh, Psalms chapter 14, oops, I didn't even get there. What a bad example. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The fool has said in his heart, Foolishness is abound in the heart of a child, right? That was me. 
I was, you could have just put my picture right behind Psalms chapter 14, verse 1. That was me, just following all this stupid stuff and partaking of this stupid stuff. Uh, you know, all the music of the time frame that I listen to, of which even to this day, if I go to a hockey game, I know most of those songs. I can tell you what the album was. I can tell you what side of the album it was, if I had the LP or cassette. CDs were later. There was only one side, so, you know, those don't count. Um, but I have a hard time remembering Bible verses. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Stuff I listened to in 1985 and 86 and 87, I if you ask me what the lyrics are, I couldn't tell you, but you play that music and I know what they are. You only have to play a little bit of it and I can tell you what band it is. But yet there's all this other stuff in the Scripture of verses I should know where they're at. And I'm like, I can give you a paraphrase version. I may even be able to quote the verse, but I don't remember what the address is. What are we partaking of? Turn over to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23 verse 7. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. See, this is a lot of things that go out there. You've got all these people that you think you're just buddying up with them, doing all the stuff with you. Their heart's not with you. You walk away and you'd be surprised what they say about you. But we think we're in. We're in this clique. We're all together. <laughs> yeah, what if you really knew what their heart was? And you're trying to be in this little group so you can get along with everybody. There's other verses we could read in Ephesians 4.30 telling us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which has sealed us into the day of redemption. Yeah, you can grieve the Lord. You can say some things that are hurtful. You can take the Lord's name in vain. You can do all sorts of things. Why? Because you're bringing the stuff into your life. Oh, well, let's just make it real personal. How about what are you watching on TV or Netflix or pick the streaming channel of choice that you have, Paramount Plus or Disney Plus or, you know, Minus or whatever else it's called. What are you watching? What are you bringing into your eyes and your mind? What is it enlightening? What is it doing for you? Is it really helping you have a, a closer Christian walk? Is it teaching you the right things, helping you to speak the right way and to mean it from the heart and not be double-minded where you're saying one thing to somebody, but you really think another because you just want to be thought of as a good person? All those kinds of things. What substances are you partaking of? See, when we got married, I think I'd just stopped doing Copenhagen, I think, by that time. Eh, maybe not. Okay, yeah, okay. Okay, the answer, the right answer is yes. I see, I've learned some things. What's the right answer? Okay, now I know. Um, but I was still drinking. But I wasn't drinking, you know, hard liquor like I was when I was in the Navy. I was just drinking beer every once in a while. You know, might have a couple in the fridge. Uh, I used to go over and see the father-in-law, and he made beer, and I would drink it. And then it got to a point that uh, I was thinking, my boys are watching me. What am I teaching them? 
And so I did the good, you know, American Christian thing is I still left a beer of Killian's Irish ale in my fridge on the side of the door for a while after that. But eventually got the point where I had to pour it out. Why? Because I understood that it's, it's a hypocrite of me to tell my boys, when you grow up, don't drink when they're sitting there watching me drink a beer every now and then. I can't do it. I'm not saying it was easy. But what I'm saying is what I was saying, what I was partaking of, those have to agree. Now, my boys grow up. They're now in their 20s. Do I honestly think that they have never had a drink of alcohol in your life? No, because I'm not an idiot. But what you do with some limitation, they will take to excess. Be careful of the things you're partaking of and things that are coming out of you both. And that's why this thing is called pollution. The last one is land. And I view this as a soul is what is the environment around you? What kind of pollutions are you in because where you're at? Turn over to second, back to second Peter chapter two. Second Peter chapter two, and we're going to look at verses seven and eight. And it says, and delivered just who? Lot. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. This is a lot, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah lot. And is saying the environment that he lived in was vexing his soul because of where he chose to put himself. Where are you choosing to take yourself? Oh, by the way, let's just uh, make it a little more complicated. Turn over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to look in verse 9, or 19, sorry. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your what? Body. Or sorry, that's verse 20. And in your spirit, which are God's. Now let's go back to verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Where are you taking the Holy Ghost? You taking them to that rock concert or country music concert or fill in the blank concert? Are you taking them into other events that are going on in society out there so you can be in with everybody else in your group? Are you taking the Holy Ghost to those two? Where are you taking the Lord? I'm going to give you a story, and this doesn't have a direct relationship to God. But in Jewish tradition, they leave out the zero or the O in God. So when they write it down, it's G and dash and D. They they don't use the O. According to Jewish tradition, we do not write out the Creator's name in any language unless as part of a printed book, which we know will be preserved with dignity and treated as holy. Refraining from writing out His name is a sign of reverence and awe for the Creator. If this name were to be written out and then the paper on which it was written would become lost or destroyed, or even if it was brought into an unclean place, this would be showing disrespect. It would be a desecration of His name. 
If that is what the Jews think is holiness, what do you think God thinks where, where we go? And the actions and the things we choose to partake of. It is pollution. It does affect us. In Luke chapter 17, it tells us, as in the days of Noah, we talked about that earlier. Can you imagine being Noah and you're preaching to people while you're building this ark and all the things are going on and you're preaching and you're preaching and you're preaching and nothing happens. So that when God says it's time to load up, it's you and your family and God closes the door, not one convert. Not one. That's what God says the end times are going to be like. So do not be surprised when you try to do things God's way and you talk like God wants you to talk. You bring in things to you the way God wants you to bring in. And you stay in the places where God wants you to be. That when you go out and you talk to the lost world and they don't want to listen to you, you should not be surprised. Why? We're just getting closer and closer to the days of Noah. We're getting closer and closer to the days of Lot. Do you think that... uh, What do you think happened in Sodom and Gomorrah when they saw Lot and his wife and his two daughters leave? What do you think was actually really coming out of them? Because, you know, Lot, when he showed up there, he went down there because he saw, hey, here's this bustling city and things are going on great. And then he became, you know, one of the elders. He became one of the big shots at the city gate. You know, what do you think they said when they saw him leave? Do you think it's like, oh, I wonder where he's going? Or was, oh, there's that righteous, good-for-nothing so-and-so. wonder where he's going. He's probably going to some preaching meeting. Oh, wait, this is Sunday. He's probably going to church on a Sunday a.m. or Sunday p.m. or Sunday school. Believe me, your neighbors know when your car's not there. They know when you're... And here's the thing is, they probably have a better clue and idea of where you are than you do. They know you when you show up to church. They know when you've made it part of your life. You know what the other thing they'll notice is when you don't go. Oh, see, I'll go to Sunday AM service, but that's the only one I'll go to. I, I don't want to go to those other classes that they have because, well, you know, I'm good. I've got everything I need out of the book. I've got everything I need from the Lord. Just Sunday AM service is, is good enough. And look, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I do. But sometimes we have to understand that people are watching you. Lost people are watching you. And when you go through some difficult circumstances in life, they're going to look out and see, is your Christianity real? Because that's when you're going to prove it. So your your Christianity isn't when everything's going good and you're, you know, skipping along and having a great old time. You know, that's not when your Christianity really shows. It's when you're going through a difficult time that they would go, I would be a person with no hope at this point in time, and you still have joy. Not happiness, joy, because there's a difference. And when they see that the joy, then something happens in their life, they're going to be like, hey, neighbor, can I talk to you? How come when you went through this difficult thing, you were able to have joy and you could keep going? You now have an opportunity to witness. But what did it take? It took you being careful with the things that come out of you. It took you being careful what you're putting into you. And it took you being careful where you go. Why aren't you acting like everybody else? Then your Christian testimony will mean something. So you can have all the Christian testimony you want in the world, but until they see you 
going through a difficult trial and see you acting different than they do, that's when they're really paying attention. Uh, how many people here know who Kirby Campbell is? A couple of us. Kirby Campbell was a pastor, and he, get, he got, I think it's called arachnoiditis. It's basically where every nerve in your body is in pain and on fire, all of them. And if you just watched him try to walk, it was painful to watch. And he would still get up and preach. And in the middle of it, you could just see his nerves seizing and his muscles seething from the pain. But you know what? God later healed him completely. It's a miracle. And right now he's back to being a pastor again. And for, and he's still doing, it's called treasured trials ministry. It's where he's trying to minister to people that are going through some very difficult health issues and help them understand that here's the hard part of being a Christian. God does not give you the monopoly get out of jail free card. It says, you know, in the back of your Bible with that we give you when you get saved is when everything, you know, it's like in boot camp. I'm too stressed, Lord. I can't handle this, Lord. And God goes, you know, I have some verses that say I can do all things. It's not all things through me and the strength that I have. It's the all things through Christ. That strength you're going to get, it's only going to come from Christ. Because at there's some point you may be the strongest person that I know, but I'm going to tell you, if you live long enough, God's going to put you through a trial. Your strength is not going to be enough. And you're going to be on your knees or on your stomach, bawling your eyes out before the Lord saying, please, God, help me. And it may not even be for you. It may be for somebody else. And what I would like to say, it would be great if we could just all right now, just sit down and pray and Brother Stewart would be healed. You know, or God would give you the gift of healing and let's just go clean out the ER. But sometimes God goes, it's needful. It's needful. All things work together for good. No, the verse doesn't say you're good. It may be good for somebody else. There are some people that need to see Brother Stewart go through things, and it might be you. It might be me. Would you be willing for God to use you in that way? I mean, it's all, it's easy to say, God, I'd like you to use me like this and fill in the blank. But are you willing for God to use you through suffering in order to reach somebody? That's a high spiritual level. That's not your regular, you know, economical, we're going to get together and have this, you know, all these different groups and we're going to do good things. Sometimes the greatest good that ever happens in the Christian life is one Christian seeing another Christian suffer and go, oh, Lord, please help him. I mean, because I've known Brother Stuart for a long time. If there was something that I could do that would heal him, I would do it. But obviously, whatever's going on, God's not done with him yet. There's more to this trial that's going on. And sometimes it's minute by minute and day by day that God wants to work on you to do that. Well, guess what? Same thing with this pollution stuff. Minute by minute, you have to deal with what comes out of your mouth, what you're putting into your eyes and your ears and into your body and where the places are going. It's not just once a week. It's not just that. It's your whole life. 
What are the choices that you're making? How are you going to do those things that God wants you to do and get rid of some of this pollution? And believe me, it's not like it all happened at one time. I did not stop drinking and did not stop chewing tobacco just because I got preached to in one message. It took time. And a lot of it had to do with God convicting me to where it eventually got the point like, it's like, yeah, Lord, you're right. Yeah, Lord, you're right. I'm wrong again. (laughs) I know this is a surprise to you, but I'm wrong again. Right? And it would be okay if God afflicted me with something because I deserve it. You know, that's the worldly thinking of it. But even the Lord told you, sometimes the stuff that happens is not because of anything that they did. It's so He can get the glory. Please, please don't stop praying for each other. Don't stop praying for Brother Stewart. I don't know if you need to set an hourly alarm. I don't know what it is you need to do. I don't know if maybe you as a church should all hold hands and get in front of this altar and pray for him. I don't know what the answer is. But what I do encourage is all of you as a church family to pray for him and pray for his wife and pray for his girls. It is not fun to go through the coal of medical issues where you're dealing with doctors like you get one report and then you're really bummed out. And then a week later you get a real report, oh, well, this is better. And you're on this roller coaster of emotions. It's hard. And then on top of that, as a person, you may love them. What can you do? What can I do? You know what we can do? We can pray. We can pray because we know that as Christians, we have the ability to go to the throne room of God and bring that petition to him. See, this isn't like where I have to go to somebody and find somebody who's you know, really righteous, a really good person, ask them, would you please pray for so-and-so and I'll give you some money or whatever else. That's what God says. He says, if you're saved, you have the right to go to the throne room and bring that prayer or petition before him. You have something nobody in the Old Testament ever had any chance to have. You know that when you bring that prayer, he will listen to you. Doesn't mean he's going to give you the answer you want, but he will listen to you. And I would humbly ask each and every one of you, I don't think it's enough that three guys get up here and pray. I'm just trying to be honest. I think we're past three guys getting up here and praying for Brother Stewart. We're almost at a year at this point. I think I really want to beg you as a church family. I don't know if you want to huddle together, hold hands. I don't care what it is, but I think it's the whole church family needs to pray for Brother Stewart. I think you all need to pray for him. It's not enough for just one or two of us. And if nothing else, his girls and his wife can go back to him and say, hey, I saw the whole church family get together and pray. Brother Griffey, can you come on forward? And I'm just going to say a short prayer to end my part of it. I may not be right. I'm just telling you what's on my heart for Brother Stewart. So, Lord, we pray and ask that you'd bless the message, Lord. Help it be an encouragement to the saints. Please be with Brother Stewart, Lord. And, and as we finish up this service, Lord, that you would receive all the praise, glory, and honor. It's all you. It all belongs to you, Lord. Please, please be uh, with Brother Stewart.
comfort him, strengthen him, give the doctors the godly wisdom they need. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.